0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to this evening's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris. I'm chair of the club's Technology and Society member Let Forum, and I will be your host for this evening's program. The Commonwealth Club is America's longest-standing public forum. We are proud to maintain our focus on informing the public and our members about key local, national, and world developments. This is the place to be in the know. The focus of the Technology and Society member-led forum is to expose the members and attendees to current and emerging developments in science and technology, tonight's program, and in the process generate ideas and thinking about the use and commercialization of technology in creating a better world for all of us. We welcome and encourage your participation in all of our programs. More information can be found at www.commonwellclab.org. Hopefully you saw some of the wonderful programs that are being advertised out while you were sitting in the audience. Um, I also want to welcome the people who are listening remotely, the digital world, Uh, welcome. Also to any new members, we're happy to have you. On behalf of the club, I would also like to thank the wonderful folks at Wonderfest for their support for today's program. At this time, please silence all your wonderful noise making and other devices. Thank you. And now to today's speaker about two eclipses. On my way in, I thought, every once in a while, you meet a wonderful person. What is a wonderful person? A wonderful person to me is someone who explains very interesting things. We have one of those people tonight. Dr. Andrew Franknoy will describe how eclipses come to be, what scientists learn doing these things, Exactly when and where eclipses in 2023 and 2024 will be visible, how to observe them in the sun safely. Dr. Fratnoy is the retired chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. He retired in 2017. Now he teaches introductory astronomy at the Fromm Institute. Obviously, some of your wonderful students here tonight. At the University of San Francisco and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute uh, at San Francisco State. He is the lead author of the most frequently used basic ac- astronomy text in the country: "Astronomy," published free online by the nonprofit OpenStax project at Rice University. He has also published two children's books. Some of them are available outside. He'll be happy to sign them at the conclusion of today's program. Several teaching manuals, and recently seven science fiction books based on good astronomy. We were talking about UFOs before you got started, and I won't say any more about that. Uh, he appears regularly on local and national radio explaining science developments. The International Astronomical Union has named Asteroid 4859, Asteroid Fracnoid, To recognize his contributions to the public appreciation of science. Without further ado, a wonderful person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Thank you, Gerald, for that really nice introduction, my goodness. I hasten to, to sh- be sure to tell you that asteroid Fractnor is a very boring asteroid in the main asteroid belt and poses no danger to planet Earth. So it's not going to be one of those killer asteroids. All right, well, um, I, I want to make sure that uh, everyone appreciates the fact that we're talking about real events, in the real sky coming up. Um, I want to talk to you about what is being called an eclipse double header. You rarely get this. Two eclipses in the same country, the same continent, in the same school year. Uh, so I'm really pleased to be your tour guide uh, to these celestial events. Um, here's the map that shows the two events on October 14th, 2023, we will have an annular eclipse, and we'll talk more about what that means, uh, that goes from the west coast down toward the southeast. And then on April 8, 2024, we're going to have a total eclipse of the sun that starts in Mexico and goes all the way up to northeastern Canada. If you're on those narrow paths, you'll see... Uh, uh, either an annual or a total eclipse, but everybody in North America will see some kind of eclipse. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So what is an eclipse? An eclipse is when the moon covers the sun. Many people know that, but what most people don't know is how remarkable eclipses are on planet Earth. Because on Earth, the moon happens to be almost exactly the same size in the sky as the sun, so that the moon can exactly cover the sun. We've actually calculated, and that doesn't happen in any other planet-moon combination in the solar system. So you really picked a good planet to live on. (laughs) Talk about real estate, real estate, real estate. This is a great planet because we get total eclipses of the sun just in case you don't believe me here you can see one of the moons of mars trying to eclipse the sun and doing a pathetic job you see they just can't cover the sun it's also the wrong shape as it turns out so we're on the right planet for these spectaculars in the sky um Here is what happens when the moon exactly covers the sun. We, in fact, get to see the outer layers of the sun, the atmosphere of the sun, the active regions where tongues of flame come out of the sun. This is something you never see when the bright sun completely blinds you. But with the moon getting into just the right place, you get to see facets of the sun we never see ordinarily. Um... As I've mentioned, this is a cover-up, and here's how it works. Uh, The Earth and the Moon and the Sun are exactly lined up. The Moon is the right size, and it exactly covers the Sun. The Moon is smaller, but closer. The Sun is bigger, but further away, and the two just work out very nicely. Uh, And as we talked about, there are three types of eclipses. In the total eclipse, you're in a place on Earth where the lineup is exact, and the Moon, as I've just described, completely covers the Sun. In an annular eclipse, the Moon, whose orbit is not exactly a circle, the Moon happens to be in a more distant part of its orbit, and it can't quite cover the Sun. It's trying to, but it leaves a ring of Sun showing around it. Another name for ring is annulus. So this is called an annular eclipse, where you still see a ring of sunlight around the dark sphere of the moon. And then finally, if things are not lined up, if you're not in the right place on Earth, then you get to see a partial eclipse, where the moon takes a big bite out of the sun, but the sun is not completely covered. Here's what they look like. Uh, When they're photographed, the total eclipse there you see on a photo the beautiful outer atmosphere of the sun that I was describing. The ring doesn't have to be exactly symmetrical when you have an annular eclipse. And the partial eclipse can make for some spectacular photographs, as we'll see. Um, Just in case you don't believe me that this actually happens, here from space is the moon's dark shadow during an eclipse. Right? So this is the actual dark shadow inside of which people see the eclipse. Because the Earth turns and the Moon moves, that shadow moves across the Earth as the eclipse continues, and that's why we have this line or, uh, or uh, path that travels uh, as the eclipse continues. All right, so... The last thing before a total eclipse is what we like to call the diamond ring effect. The last mountain on the moon to have sunlight filtering through it gives this glimmering sudden burst of light through that mountain, and that looks like a diamond ring. Then everything goes dark. Um, So let's talk more specifically about what's coming so you can be prepared. Um, This is a poster by my friend Tyler Nordgren, an astronomer who likes likes to make posters. We call this the American West Ring of Fire Eclipse because it's going to be especially good in Western states. And it's October 14th, which is a Saturday. So it's going to be a family event. Kids will be home from school. People will be home from work. Uh, Here in California, it'll be early in the morning. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But... Uh, This will be a great thing for families to watch together. Um, Here's a sequence of what you will see over time if you happen to be in the annular eclipse path. The moon's shadow will go over the sun slowly and then eventually just leave the ring of fire at the the midpoint of the eclipse. Uh, A big variable for seeing the eclipse successfully will be weather. Uh, Here is the map of the parts of the united states the the blue lines enclose the path and you can see it starts out in oregon uh goes down through texas and in october some of those places could have clouds um so uh, a lot depends on what the weather turns out to be, and weather is harder to predict in the stock market, uh, so we, don't, we can't promise you. But here are some of the places that the, the eclipse will be annular, where you can see the ring, uh, starting in Eugene, Oregon, moving into Nevada. Um, Albuquerque, New Mexico will be a big city, and they're going to have a balloon festival right at this time. and They're preparing for huge crowds, parts of Texas, and then on into Central America. This is where you can see the annular eclipse. And uh, uh, the the material that I'm going to show you, those of you here have a a program, a handout with the websites to find all this information. Uh, Those of you at home, I'll put the web addresses up for you. Uh, But this is something that will be included in the materials you'll be getting. But here, for example, is a detailed map of where in Oregon it's the best And the interesting thing to keep in mind is that an eclipse path is not the same everywhere. The closer you are to the middle of the shadow, the longer the the eclipse lasts, and the better the experience. So if you're an eclipse chaser, you not only look at where the eclipse will be visible, but how close you can get to the center of the path. And there are maps available on the Great American Eclipse website and many other places where you can find the best spot for the longest viewing. Um, This, though, is what I was talking about in terms of weather. Uh, This is a slide that shows you the amount of cloudiness we expect on a typical October day based on the last 18 years. And you can see that it's quite different. Near the Pacific, uh, the prediction is that there's a 70% chance of cloud cover. So if you go to Eugene, Oregon, that's good, but you're taking a risk. On the other hand, if you go to Albuquerque, the percentage of cloud cover is only 30%. So that's a big difference. And again, maps like this are available on the web. You can find them. But do put that into your calculations if you're going to see the annular eclipse. Well, those of you here at the, uh, uh, in, in San Francisco might wonder how it is for us uh, why, and how it is in the big cities. So most cities in the United States are not on the path. And they're going to have a partial eclipse. But there's a wide range of how big a bite this, uh, the moon takes out of the sun. So here, for example, in San Francisco, 83% of the sun's diameter will be covered. That's very good. Uh, on the other hand, in Washington, D.C., only 42% of the sun's diameter will be covered. 42% is about the usual level of cover-up in Washington, D.C. No, I, I didn't say that. Um, but you can see wide variety. San Antonio, Texas, gets a total eclipse in some parts and a 96% in other parts. Uh, in Los Angeles, it'll be a 78% eclipse. And again, there are ways you can look this up for your city, wherever you are. Um, But let's talk about here where the Commonwealth Club headquarters are located in San Francisco. I said we're going to have an 83% coverage of the sun's diameter. But here's the interesting news. The eclipse begins early in the morning. uh, So that Friday before, don't do too much drinking. Uh, 8.05 a.m., the partial eclipse begins. It's the best eclipse at 9.20 a.m. on October 14th. And the eclipse ends by 10.42 a.m. And for those who know San Francisco, that's going to be an interesting challenge, because much of San Francisco has hills which bar your eastern view. Since the sun rises in the east, and this is early in the day, you'll need to find a spot— where you can see the sun rise, where you can see the sun come up in the east, which may mean that you need to climb some hills in many parts of San Francisco to get an eastern view. And the best thing to do is not to leave this till Saturday, but check it out on the days before and get yourself a good place to to locate uh, your eclipse viewing. All right. Uh, By the way, if you want to find for any eclipse what it's like for you in your community, in any community, I recommend timeanddate.com, timeanddate, just one word, timeanddate.com slash eclipse. For any eclipse coming up, they will tell you exactly what it's like for your community. You just put in the name of your community. They're a wonderful nonprofit service for all kinds of sky information. All right. Well, in a sense, that annular eclipse is the appetizer. And now I want to tell you about the main course. On April 8th, 2024, which is a Monday, uh, we will have what's being called the Great North American Total Solar Eclipse, visible in Mexico, U.S., and Canada. Um, During a total eclipse, as I've mentioned, the moon slowly covers the sun. The sun's outer atmosphere comes out in a beautiful dark sky because the absence of sunlight makes the sky dark. Animals actually get very confused at this point because they think that the night has come at a time their stomach says it's not right, and so they don't quite know what to do with themselves. Many humans have that problem. And then uh, there'll be a few minutes of total eclipse, which is like night in the middle of the day. Uh, A hush descends, stars come out, the atmosphere of the sun becomes visible, and then after the few minutes of total eclipse, we reverse course, and the moon moves off the sun, and the sun resumes its normal shining. Um, So uh, this is what's going to be coming if you're in the path. Otherwise, again, you'll see a partial eclipse. Um, Here is the map of where the eclipse will be total starting in texas actually it starts in mexico but this is a u.s map starting in texas many large cities will be in the eclipse path including dallas and austin um, indianapolis uh, uh, parts of upstate new york including niagara falls niagara falls will have a total eclipse can you imagine the weddings that are already being planned for niagara falls and how impossible it will be to get any kind of lodging. Um, And then it goes up into New England and into eastern, uh, northeastern Canada. Um, So uh, many more cities are in the eclipse path, more population is in the eclipse path than was true in 2017, the last time the United States had a total eclipse. Uh, So there'll be a lot of people already well-positioned, to see the eclipse, and if you have any friends or relatives in that zone, now is the time to remind them how much you miss them, and how much you'd like an invitation around April 8th, 2024, to visit with them. All right, now this is what the eclipse enthusiasts do with the map I just show you. If you're an eclipse enthusiast, you're only interested in the total eclipse, only in that spectacular thing. And since it's in since it's in three countries, uh this is a multilingual map. For the eclipse enthusiast, every other place is nope, 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 nope. nope. And the only thing that matters is the path of the total eclipse. Fantastico, OMG, not bad, eh? That's Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Uh, So this is a, a nice cartoon showing you what the enthusiasts are thinking about. But even if you can't travel to the path where it's total, you'll have a very nice partial eclipse on a Monday in April. By the way, there are more national parks in the two eclipse paths than there were last time. And so, if you're into camping in the national or state parks, you can go to some of the national parks that are in the path, and all the rangers are preparing special programs and for big crowds in those paths. By the way, this is also from a, a website called greatamericaneclipse.com. I recommend that website. It's a geographer who's a great eclipse enthusiast, and he makes the best maps of everything connected with eclipses, greatamericaneclipse.com. All right. Here are the places where the eclipse will be total in April. uh, And uh, as I mentioned, several places in Texas it will be total total. Uh, Indianapolis, uh, Carbondale, Illinois, uh, was very happy to be in the eclipse in 2017, and they're one of the few places that was in both that eclipse and the eclipse we're having now, so they can't get over themselves in terms of how great it is to live in Carbondale, Illinois, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, Buffalo, New York, and so on. But as I mentioned, uh, the further north you are, the more likely you're going to have to worry about weather. It's April weather in the United States. And generally speaking, the weather people tell us the further north you go, uh, the more likely it will be cloudy. Again, here is a graph that shows you the likelihood of clouds Um, It's particularly good in terms of low coverage in parts of Mexico, but they're not well-populated parts of Mexico. And then you can see there are some cities that are a little better than others, but even in the best U.S. cities like Cleveland, we're still talking about 60% likelihood of clouds. So as you think about where you're going to go, many of the enthusiasts are picking Texas as the place where they're more more likely to have some low low cloud cover possibility. All right. And again, you can see that the the eclipse path covers a bit of territory, about 100 miles across, roughly. And uh, here it is in, in Mexico. By the way, Mazatlan is in the center of the Eclipse Path. Can you imagine what condos and Mazatlan will go for for that day in April? Um, And then uh, here's a map of Texas. You can see San Antonio is just on the edge of the path, but you can take a highway from there to the center. Uh, Austin is at the edge of the path. Fort Worth is at the other edge of the path, but there are lots of uh, roads out of Fort Worth. Uh, and same with Dallas. Dallas is on one edge of the path where people will try to go into the center. So, as I mentioned, the thegreatamericaneclipse.com is where you can find map resources like this if you want to explore other states and other parts of the world. What will it be like in major cities Well, again, it uh, depends on where you are relative to the path. In April, New York City will have 91% coverage, so that'll be a big bite taken out of the sun, whereas we in San Francisco will only have a 45% uh, of the diameter of the sun covered. So different cities, uh, depending on how far they are from the path, will have different bite sizes. Uh, Here in the Bay Area... As I said, 45% of the sun will be covered. Uh, the eclipse will begin for us at 10.14 a.m. The maximum eclipse will be 11.13 a.m. And the eclipse will end uh, about a quarter of an hour afternoon at 12.16. So, uh, and that'll be a Monday, so you may be observing this from work. Or if you work from home, then you may be making arrangements from home. All right, so we, we asked, looking at these maps, who will see some kind of eclipse in 2023 and 2024? And the answer turned out to be 332 million people in the U.S., 37 million people in Canada, 129 million people in Mexico, for 500 million people. This is an astronomy teacher contemplating the educational challenge of 500 million people need to be educated about this. Now, we have a great attendance here at the Commonwealth Club, but it's nowhere near 500 million. We still have a lot of work to do. Um, Whenever any part of the sun's surface is showing, it's not safe to look with unprotected eyes. That's the important thing I want you to take away from this talk, that you need to find a way to protect your eyes while you're enjoying an eclipse. One way to do it is to have eclipse glasses, specially made glasses, which have a a specially made uh, plastic material that cuts out most of the light of the sun and is certified to be safe. Those of you lucky enough to be here in person at the Commonwealth Club, I will give you a free pair of such glasses at the end of the talk, thanks to the uh, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, who I will be talking about more in a minute. And smart kids and adults uh, during the last eclipse made sure to have the appropriate protection before they looked up. Not all the adults (laughs) did the same. For those of you on the radio, this is former President Trump, who looked up just very briefly. He didn't look for a long time, but he pointed up at the eclipse. All right. Um, So... For 500 million people, you don't need 500 million glasses because these glasses can be shared. Especially the partial eclipse is a long experience and you can share the, the glasses and share the experience, hand the glasses around, you make sure you have lots of other entertainment for the kids if you're with them. Um, but nevertheless, we'll need a lot of these glasses. Um, We asked ourselves, how could we get glasses to the public? In 2017, we thought about this quite a bit before the eclipse, and a group of us came up with the idea that every community, even small ones, tends to have an information distribution center already. It's called a public library. So we proposed to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, could we give eclipse glasses to public libraries and have that be a place where both information and safe viewing is available. And it was an amazing success. We gave out more than a million glasses through public libraries. Lots of libraries participated. So having no shame, we astronomers went back to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and said, can we do it again? Can we do it bigger? And they have agreed, and we had some extra help. And so I'm happy to report that thanks to the foundation, we are going to give out 6 million eclipse glasses through 13,000 public libraries nationwide. And uh, thank you. I'm really thrilled to be part of this project. It's being run through the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado, Um, Many of the Bay Area libraries are participating. San Francisco Library, for example, is participating. I've made a training video for the San Francisco public librarians for them to know how to answer public questions. But still, six million glasses is not 500 million, right? We're still going to need a lot more to help the public. And I want to talk a little bit about that as part of this discussion. Um, So if you are a library or if you are listening to this and would like to recommend this to your public library, the libraries can go to this short URL, uh, bit.ly slash glassesforlibraries. I thought that was an easy one to remember. bit.ly bit.ly slash glassesforlibraries. And they can there apply. It's totally free for the library, but they have to do it soon because we've got a lot of libraries already linked up. I, last I heard, 4.6 million glasses have been spoken for already. So, But um, if you are one of the libraries or librarians, you get a booklet that I wrote with a colleague uh, all about this, and that booklet is free to the libraries and free to their patrons. If you want to find it online, it's at bit.ly eclipses for libraries. Um, and uh, that booklet has the maps and charts that I showed you with where, uh, what the eclipse is like in different cities. So bit.ly, eclipses for libraries. Um, uh, I've written with that same colleague a book for kids that explains what eclipses are all about with pictures and simple experiments you can do at home. So, if you have kids or grandkids who are not yet ready for the full scientific explanation uh, that you would get in high school or college, uh, this is a book that can make uh, uh, sense of what's happening uh, for younger kids. It's called When the Sun Goes Dark. It's published by the nonprofit National Science Teaching Association Press. And it's available here at the Commonwealth Club from their bookstore. And it's available online. Wherever you buy books, Uh, When the Sun Goes Dark is the title of it. And as I say, it shows experiments you can do with tennis balls and lamps and ways you can bring the whole idea of the orbits of the different worlds uh, home to the kids. Uh, For teachers, we also wrote a book of classroom activities that go with eclipses. Uh, It's called Solar Science. And again, you can... Uh, get this from the nonprofit National Science Teaching Association Press. Um, and uh, uh, maybe you can mention it to teachers who are looking for things to do. Um, in addition, with this grant from the uh, Moore Foundation, we had the idea of training some secret agents to help astronomers. Who are good secret agents to help astronomers with eclipse outreach? We thought science teachers. There's nobody more enthusiastic than the typical high school or middle school science teacher. Uh, So we received funding to train 275 science teachers uh, to help their communities around the United States. And that's ongoing now. We've started training, and many of the science teachers are now reaching out to their libraries, to community fairs, and organizations. Um, and again, there is a booklet for teachers that we've put together, and it's available at bit.ly slash eclipses for teachers. You don't have to be a member of the uh, Secret Agent Society. Any teacher can get that at bit.ly slash eclipses for teachers, and it's a a long 28-page book with activities you can do uh, in the classroom to help kids appreciate eclipses. I do want to mention, I get no money from this, that a a colleague of mine, uh, Doug Duncan, uh, an astronomer has invented something we've needed for a long time. Most people no longer use regular cameras. For those of us who are old fashioned nerds, this is a really sad thing that everybody just takes pictures with their phone, which is not that adjustable, although it's pretty clever. Um, and so a lot of people tried to take pictures of the sun with their phone, and it didn't work out well in 2017. But the same filtering material in these glasses could snap onto a phone and then allow you to take pictures of the sun without any danger. And he called it Solar Snap, the eclipse app. It's both a filter that snaps onto your phone and an app to help you use it. And it's just called Solar Snap. And as I say, I don't get any money from it, but it's so clever, I wanted to mention it in case you're looking for a way to use your phone or you're worried that a younger relative might use their phone and damage their eyes. Solar Snap is a way to protect their eyes. This is the kind of picture you can take with a good camera during a partial eclipse. This is New York City uh, during a partial eclipse of the sun. And you can see even if it's cloudy, it's often possible to wait out the motion of the clouds and get a, a view of the sun in between cloud layers where you can see the bite taken out of the sun. A big issue in the eclipse zone will be what it's like the day of the eclipse. And most people in 2017 who had a not good experience with the eclipse, it came because of traffic and not planning ahead. So don't decide the day before that you're going to get up at 3 a.m. and drive into the eclipse zone. Lots of other people will have that same idea, and you will have unbelievable traffic jams. The important thing is if you're going to look at this eclipse with Uh, the ability to actually get there and breathe, you need to do it the day before, at least the day before. Now, one of these is on a Saturday, one of these is on a Monday, so you have to plan your time accordingly, maybe a day off before the Saturday one, but make sure you don't get caught in the traffic jams right before or right after. In 2017, we tried to leave too early and it was a hopeless jam. Um, Many cities are now looking seriously at this. We have a task force at the American Astronomical Society where we're trying to train not just astronomers and science teachers, but also city planners and emergency management people, because in those cities that normally don't get a lot of tourism, but where suddenly people will descend because they're in one of the eclipse zones— They will not be prepared with basic necessities. Here you see what I mean by basic necessities. Uh, I'm showing a porta potty. Uh, Many, many communities ran out of bathroom facilities for the 2017 eclipse. So we're encouraging people and communities to plan ahead, to make sure they have drinking water, to make sure they're ready for the large crowds that they're going to have. Um, this is not the first time this has been an issue in the United States. I just want to show you this headline from June 8, 1918, to show you that this has been an issue before. Thousands point glasses at sun to watch eclipse. And there's a nice map, just like the map I showed you. Uh, there's a picture of the total eclipse. And then at the bottom it says, Police enforce quiet so astronomers at university may make priceless observations. Huh? Why did it need to be quiet? Um, I mean, these days, there are actually people doing citizen science, listening for bird sounds and animal sounds and trying to see how nature responds. But I doubt they were doing that in 1918. That's just a headline writer running away with his or her enthusiasm. Um, But throng-seek vantage points, that's going to be true. You need to know ahead of time where you're going to be, reserve your spot, etc. So uh, we are learning from past generations and sometimes forgetting the lessons of past generations when eclipses come again. So the most important thing I can tell you about all this is please plan ahead, think ahead, make sure you make reservations, and you make this eclipse the kind of experience that you can enjoy. All right, so what do you do if you run out of glasses? What do you do if, let's say, some group has glasses, but your group doesn't? How can you still observe the eclipse? And again, those booklets that I've mentioned to you have a much better and longer write-up of what to do when you don't have glasses. But I'll just mention that a relatively simple thing to do is to cover a hand mirror with cardboard and make a small hole, a little smaller than a dime. Make sure the cardboard is securely attached to the mirror so it doesn't fall off. And then use that small hole to reflect an image of the sun onto a screen or a wall. The covered mirror can project an image onto a wall, where if it's far enough away, it'll be a big image. Or you can even put the mirror on a stand, and then line it up in such a way that you have a screen which gets a nice image. And that image is safe to look at. The sun is not safe to look at, but the tiny amount of light coming from that mostly covered mirror, by the time it reaches the wall or the screen, is perfectly safe to look at. And then everybody around you can share the experience of seeing the bite taken out of the sun safely. So that's one way uh, that you could observe the eclipse without Glasses. Uh, A simpler way, even than that, is to to make what's called a pinhole projector. uh, To take a piece of cardboard, uh, especially if you could put some aluminum foil in the middle, and make a small pinhole through either the cardboard or the aluminum foil in the middle, and then project an image onto a piece of paper or a screen a little further away. That gets you a smaller image. Oftentimes, the same person is holding the two pieces of paper, and so the image isn't very much larger. But still, people can look at the projected image through a pinhole, and that image is safe to look at. Don't use the pinhole to look at the sun. (laughs) Take the pinhole, hold it in such a way that an image of the sun appears opposite the pinhole. And then you'll be able to see a small but distinct image of the eclipsed sun. But if you don't want to bother making something, you already have something at home which will do the job for you. And that's a colander. You know what a colander is? It's a pinhole with many, 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 many pinholes next to each other. Colanders colander is where you, know, you wash pasta or salad, and it's got a lot of pinholes for the water to go through. If you hold a colander over your shoulder and let the sun's shadow fall onto a sidewalk, you'll see many, many images on the sidewalk of the eclipse sun. Plus, if you're outdoors holding a colander over your shoulder, every neighbor and passerby will say, is this guy crazy? What's going on? Why is he holding a colander over his shoulder? And there are all those people around him, and you'll be the sensation of the neighborhood. So I strongly recommend making sure you have a colander both October and April, and you'll be a hero. Um, More sophisticated people, Uh, You can use binoculars, for example, cover one uh, part of the, one half of the binoculars, and uh, with uh, letting the sunlight through the binoculars onto a piece of paper, you can make a binocular projector. And again, instructions for this are in the booklets that I mentioned. Um, Many amateur astronomers will have special telescopes with filters and Uh, with projection that will show you nice images of the sun, and they'll be set up in various public places. Again, many libraries are working with astronomy clubs, astronomy organizations, astronomy professors at the local community college. So the first place to check for what's going to be happening during the eclipses will be your local public library. If not them, then you can Google whether there's an amateur club near you or an astronomy department or professor in a local college. And again, don't do it the last day, but with sufficient notice, you can find out what special community events are being planned in each community. And many, many, many communities are already planning events for both those dates. If you want to know more about safety, I particularly recommend the American Astronomical Society's Eclipse Task Force website. It's eclipse.aas.org. The American Astronomical Society is the professional organization of astronomers. Uh, We have this task force that's been working for years on getting information out. And uh, Rick Feinberg, who's the head of this task force, has been doing a great job uh, looking at safety issues. For example, uh, how can we make sure that people know how to observe an eclipse safely, that they know where to go to get glasses? All of that is set out on the aas.org uh, website, eclipse.AAS. Org. And there you can learn more about what glasses are okay, what are not. The glasses need to be certified to a particular standard, an ISO standard. Those of you who get glasses today, you'll see on the back of the glasses that there's an ISO standard uh, to which the glasses need to be certified. In 2017, at the last minute, lots of foreign... Um, Uh, manufacturers introduced non-certified glasses onto Amazon. And people were very confused when warnings started to appear, don't make sure that you have a certified pair of glasses. So this year we're actually working with Amazon, they've been very cooperative, and we want to make sure that only certified glasses get into circulation. If you can't find them at a library, many planetariums and science museums will have glasses. Sometimes it's not free. You'll have to buy them for a few dollars, but that's okay. Science stores will have them. In some communities, hardware stores are doing it. Uh, many uh, parent-teacher associations are doing a fundraiser by ordering these glasses in advance and then making them available for school sale, etc., So in each community, there'll be different people working on this. And again, the earlier you start researching this in your community, the more likely you are to have success. Now, one of the questions that people often ask is, why is an eclipse so rare? Why don't we have an eclipse more often? After all, the Earth is orbited by the moon once every month. Okay, you call it month, right? But it's really moon. Once every month, the moon goes around us, why don't we have an eclipse every month when the sun and the moon are lined up? And the answer turns out to be that when the moon formed, it wasn't well behaved. It actually got into an orbit which is tilted relative to the orbit that we make around the sun. So the orbit on which we see the sun go around the seasons and the orbit on which we see the moon go around every month are tilted relative to each other. And that means only when the two orbits cross will you actually get to see an eclipse, a cover-up. A best way to demonstrate that is with hula hoops. One hula hoop can be where we see the sun in the sky, another hula hoop is where we see the moon in the sky, and the two hula hoops are tilted relative to each other. So most months, the tilt is such that the moon is either above the sun or below the sun, and you don't get an eclipse. But roughly every six months or so, the two orbits cross, and then you get what we call eclipse season. And it's during those eclipse seasons that we get eclipses of the sun, and also, by the way, eclipses of the moon. Um, And you can actually find eclipse calendars which trace over the years how that roughly six months repetition of eclipse season is going. Here you see it for 2021. In 2022, it moved a little bit. It moved again in 2023. But they're roughly six months apart. You don't always get an eclipse where you live because eclipses can happen anywhere on Earth. And most of the Earth's surface is water, Two-thirds of the Earth's surface is water, so often that eclipse is over water. Um, There are people who have enormous resources who rent ships or airplanes and try to go where each eclipse is, but for most of us, we have to wait till it comes somewhat closer to us. And so, uh, although there may be an eclipse every six months, it will not happen necessarily where you're even aware of it. Still, that's the reason we don't get eclipses every month. Now, I do want to mention that eclipses were known long before science explained just what's happening. Um, And there are many wonderful legends and myths and stories associated with eclipses. I don't have time to share most of those with you. But I did want to mention that in many Asian countries, there's a wonderful tradition that what an eclipse is all about is a dragon eating the sun. And the dragon swallows the sun. That's why it goes dark. And the myth and the legend is you need to frighten the dragon. And the way you frighten the dragon is you get out your pots and pans and you clang on them as loud as you can. So there's enormous noise in the streets to frighten the dragon into letting go of the sun. And you know what? It always works. (laughs) And the dragon is scared and the sun Return. So it's a, it's a wonderful tradition. Um, I'll just mention without going into a lot of detail here that we learned about the sun's outer layers uh, longer ago than we expected from eclipses. When the moon covers the sun, the sun's outer layers become visible. There are a number of different layers in the outer atmosphere of the sun. Uh, The colorful one is called the chromosphere, because it's color, chromo. And then the outer layer, which is very faint, but extremely extended, is called the corona. And today we can make artificial eclipses in our telescopes, But before that became possible, people learned about the layers of the Sun and an understanding of how the Sun worked during eclipses. So eclipses were really important in the history of astronomy. And I can't resist just mentioning that Albert Einstein was an enormous eclipse fan after 1919, because Einstein had made a crazy prediction in the 19-teens. He predicted in his general theory of relativity that gravity could be thought of as a warping of space and time. Say what? That somehow the very structure of space itself could be warped by strong gravity. And that was a crazy idea, and people said, why should I believe a word of this, which is how science works. We say, why should I believe a word of this until you give us proof? Um, And Einstein suggested that there should be an expedition, To see the next eclipse, because the only object in the solar system with strong enough gravity to show this effect measurably was the sun. And if you could see beams of starlight coming by the sun, Einstein said, you would see that those beams of starlight get bent by the warping of space itself. A crazy idea that starlight going by the sun would be warped in some way. Now, it's pretty hard to see starlight going near the sun. Why is that? Sun's a little bright, right? You can't see starlight by the sun. But when the moon completely covers the sun, the stars come out. Einstein said, look at the stars closest to the sun during the moments of total eclipse, measure their positions, compare it what, to what the positions are like in a star atlas, and you will see that the stars nearest the sun will be out of place by a certain amount, by the amount that space is warped." In 1919, an expedition to an island off the coast of Africa uh, made these measurements. They took photographs. They exposed them with trembling hands. They measured the position of the stars, and they were out of place by exactly the amount Einstein had predicted. And that's when Einstein became world famous. Uh, I have the actual headline Lights, this is the New York Times, lights all askew in the heavens, men of science more or less agog over results of eclipse observations. You're either more agog or less agog. I don't quite get that, but okay. But the most important part, Einstein's theory triumphs. That was the headline in the New York Times. So eclipses have had a long history of both being enjoyable, interesting, and scientifically valid. Um, uh, the next eclipse visible in the continental United States will not be until August 2045. So please don't miss this one. You got a long wait if you're a U.S. citizen. It's going to be a long, long time before you get another eclipse. Um, so I hope I've given you something good to chew on in this lecture. Uh, for those on the radio, I'm showing eclipse gum here. And I hope that you've learned enough to enjoy the eclipse, and I will end by saying, I wish you clear skies for both eclipses. Thank you. Didn't I tell you he was
0: a wonderful person? (laughs) (laughs) He's going to sit up here and take a few questions, and if someone, I'll I'll gather a few. I got one or two or three here. And... um, Let me start off with this first question, because you kind of hinted at it. This gentleman over here, let me see if I can get this pretty much uh, correct here. But he says, if you're flying in a small plane, like from Nevada to Atwater, uh, would you be able to see the eclipse? I guess the general question is, flying in an airplane to get yes. a better view
1: right i mean the the idea of the air many people have done this they've rented a plane the problem is you may have to make sure that the window is pointed that you're sitting at is pointed in the right direction right it's no good if you're on the other side of the plane and it's no good you know if the pilot is not aware of what's happening so you, people who rent a small plane or fly a small plane, of course, chart their course in such a way that they will actually chase the eclipse, try to fly with it, and get as long a view as possible in the right direction.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, the next question is,
1: very good questions, how are eclipses predicted? Carefully. Um, so <laughs> the interesting thing that I always like to tell students about because it's, it's so great when you, when you have these arguments with people who don't trust science. One of the nice things about science is that we can make predictions. The better our understanding of nature, the more likely we are to be able to make predictions. So one of the things that we've been learning about for hundreds of years are the motions of the bodies in the solar system the motion of the earth around the sun the motion of the moon around the earth the way that other planets affect that motion because the pull of venus and mars on either side of us affects the way that the earth moon system works the pull of the sun affects everything so The more we know about gravity, the more we know about orbits, the more precisely we can calculate. Today, these are done with computers, the U.S. Naval Observatory, many branches of astronomy and the government make such calculations. And we can predict eclipses thousands of years in advance. There's actually an atlas of all the eclipses from 2,000 years ago to 3,000 years into the future. We have a 5,000-year atlas. And the nice thing about the predictions is we test them every year because eclipses happen. How good were we? And if we're not right, we refine the the calculations until we're right on target. And this is one of those things that works, where science can predict the phenomena of the solar system with very good precision. So... um, it's not that science is always right. It's not that science has figured everything out, but where science has done a lot of work, it's pretty trustworthy, And trusting science is something we could all do more of in this country right now.: so, mm-hmm. No politics. Here.
0: Yeah, I, I, I may get this next question wrong, but I think the, the gist of this is, um, say more about the kind of glasses that are safe to use, I think okay. it is as well. our, our, I think is it welding the Knox
1: Okay and- so. This is a very good question. Um, In addition to the paper glasses that I've been talking about with the special material with the ISO standard on the back, in addition to that, turns out there is one other kind of glasses that are safe to use. Sunglasses are not safe. Most filters that you put on your uh, camera are not safe. But welder's glass number 14 or higher (laughs) is safe. So if you happen to have lying around welder's goggles rated number 14 or a larger number, that's okay to use. I think most of us don't have that. It'll be a lot easier to get the plastic glasses than it is to get welder's glasses. But if it's welder's glass, it can't be any welder's glass. It's got to be number 14 or higher. Mm-hmm. But those two things, the welder's glasses and the glasses you get with the special material are the only ones that we have found that are safe for viewing the sun. Now, that special material has been made into filters for telescopes, filters for binoculars. So if you're with someone who really knows what they're doing and they can show you that it's a certified filter of the right kind, yes, then by all means, you can have a telescope project an image or even look through a telescope if it's properly filtered with safe material. But when in doubt, be very careful because your eyes are pretty valuable.
0: Great, great, great. Final question is my question. Um, which is, there's a lot we don't know about the sun, right? So what else are we trying to understand by saying that corona, and, can you say more about what is yeah. science trying to figure out during oh, the
1: Oh, thank you. This is one of my favorite questions. Yeah. You're great. Um, so, yeah, what, we've, we've been studying the sun forever. Are there still things we're trying to figure out about the sun? Sure. The sun, is, first of all, is a remarkable object. I'll just say for the younger people listening, the sun is a star. That's a really important thing to realize. All the stars, if you were up close to them, would look like a sun, not the same color, but like a giant ball of glowing gas. And the sun, if it were at the distance of the stars, would look like a point of light, like a star. So the sun is our star, and by studying the sun, we're really studying all the different stars. And the amazing thing about the sun is that it has been shining, to the best of our knowledge, for 4.6 billion years. 4.6 billion. Try to get a light bulb that works that long, right? It's been shining for 4.6 billion years. Clearly, there's a mechanism inside that continues to make energy long after other forms of energy run out. And we've learned much more about that. It's called nuclear fusion. It's a form of nuclear energy production. We're trying to duplicate that in our laboratories. You may have read in news reports relatively recently that we're still not able to make a profit on nuclear fusion on Earth. But we're getting almost to the point where it isn't costing a lot more to protect ourselves from the energy than it costs to make the energy. <laughs> but anyway, the sun does that, and we're, we've learned quite a bit about that. But the sun is much more complicated than just a source of energy. It's got layer after layer getting cooler as you get further out, except at the very edge. At the very edge, it gets hotter again in the corona. What? (laughs) The temperature is around 6,000 degrees at the edge of the sun, but rises to a million degrees in this outer atmosphere. That's not how it's supposed to work. As you get further away from a source of light, it's supposed to get cooler, not hotter. So there must be another mechanism, separate just from the transfer of heat, that's heating up this beautiful outside layer of the sun. And we now know what it is. The sun is actually magnetic. It's one of the most complicated magnets we have ever seen. And that magnetic structure is constantly disturbed because the sun is spinning. It's something many people don't know, but just like the earth spins and the moon spins, the sun spins. It takes about 27 days for the sun to spin. And that spinning twists. The magnetic field twists the magnetic structure of the sun, and it breaks and reforms, and it's unbelievably complicated. And that magnetic restructuring is what heats the outer layers of the sun, but the details are still things we're trying to learn about. So one of the things we need to learn and want to learn about the sun is how come its outer structure is both so beautiful and so complex.
0: Please join me in thanking a wonderful person back there in Thank you so much. Thank you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate.